Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Essex Church, home of this gathered community known as Kensington Unitarians on this lovely, sunny winter's day. A particular welcome to anyone who's here for the first time today. Uh, We're really glad to have you with us, and there'll be an opportunity to introduce yourself later on in the service if you wish. An, An opportunity, but not an obligation. For anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Jane Blackall. I've been a member of this congregation since 1999, uh, 16 years. And uh, I also work here as the outreach officer, which I mean, means I do things like the podcast and the website and the newsletter and a little bit of this and that about the place. Our minister, Sarah Tinker, has just begun a month's sabbatical, um, so she's probably upstairs organising a filing cabinet as we speak, and I'll be leading the service this morning in a place. Our opening words this morning are from an old friend of this congregation, the Reverend Linda Hart. We enter into this time and place to join our hearts and minds together. What is it that we come seeking? Many things, too many to mention them all. Yet it is likely that some common longings draw us to be with one another. To remember what is most important in life. To be challenged to live more truly, more deeply. To live with integrity and kindness and with hope and love. To feel the company of those who seek a common path. To be renewed in our faith, in the promise of this life to be strengthened and to find the courage to continue to do what we must do day after day, world without end. Even if your longings are different than these, you are welcome here. You are welcome in your grief and your joy to be within this circle of companions. We gather here. It's good to be together. Let's start by lighting our chalice, the symbol of our worldwide Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist community. Natasha's going to light the flame for us. In times of darkness, we stumble towards the tiny flame. In times of cold, we seek the warming fire. In times of repression, we seek the lamp of truth. In times of loss, we pray for the comforting light. In times of joy, we light a candle of celebration. Spirit of life, as we kindle this light, help us find what we need this day. Spirit of life, God of all love, Be with us now in this sacred space and bless our gathering. In this time of shared quietness, let us turn our loving attention to those issues we've already brought into our circle, those we've named and lit candles for. And let's acknowledge that there are so many other people, places and situations in the world right now some of them known to us, but too sensitive to speak of, even in this caring community. So many issues that we could never light enough candles for them all. We pray for those places in the world that are in a state of turmoil right now. 
and also for those conflicts and injustices that we are aware of closer to home, where a path to a just and peaceful outcome is hard to imagine. May there be a shift, a breakthrough, a moment of grace that makes change possible. We pray for those people known to us who are struggling, perhaps through ill health, through isolation or financial hardship, those who feel trapped by conditions that are hard to live with. May they be relieved of their burdens and given strength to cope. Each one of us knows suffering to some degree in our own lives and has worries and dilemmas to face in our day-to-day existence. Questions that unsettle us, troubles that weigh upon our minds and hearts. May we be granted respite from our cares, at least for a little while. And let us take time to give thanks for the sources of joy and comfort in our lives. For those people who are closest to us, who provide support in hard times, who encourage us and help us celebrate when things go well, with whom we can relax, pass the time and be ourselves. We give thanks for our dear and beloved ones. And for those moments where we're aware of the beauty around us in the natural world and in encounters with our fellow creatures, also through the human-made creations of art, music and literature, we give thanks for the gift of these moments which stir our hearts. And for those inspirational acts of courage and creativity which bring us hope in the struggle to overcome injustice and peacefully resolve conflict. Every small step that someone takes in defiance of despair and defeatism. We give thanks for those who dedicate their time and energy for the greater good. During the last week there will have been times when every one of us has fallen short of our highest aspirations. Moments when we have made mistakes, spoken harshly or carelessly, or failed to act as compassionately as we might have done. Let us gently bring those moments into our awareness and ask for what we need to start afresh. Guidance, forgiveness or strengthened resolve. Having acknowledged these difficult moments and brought them to light, let us gently put them aside. During the last week there have been times when each of us has made good use of the gifts that we have. Moments when we've been kind, constructive, creative and acted in harmony with the cosmos. Let us bring those moments into our awareness now and take delight in the part we have played in bringing about a better world. 
having acknowledged these moments and affirmed them, let us put them aside. Spirit of life, God of all love, we offer up our joys and concerns, our beauty and our brokenness, and call on you for insight, healing and renewal. As we look forward to the coming week and whatever challenges and opportunities it may bring, help us to live well and be our best selves, using our gifts in the service of love, justice and peace. Amen. Our first reading is an extended excerpt of a poem by Walt Whitman. It's going to be about three or four minutes, slightly longer than our usual reading, so I suggest you relax and enjoy it. So this is from I Sing the Body Electric by Walt Whitman. I sing the body electric, the armies of those I love engirth me, and I engirth them. <coughs> they will not let me off till I go with them, respond to them, and discorrupt them, and charge them full with the charge of the soul. <coughs> Was it doubted that those who corrupt their own bodies conceal themselves? And if those who defile the living are as bad as they who defile the the dead, and if the body does not do fully as much as the soul, and if the body were not the soul, what is the soul? The love of the body of man or woman bulks account. The body itself bulks account. That of the male is perfect and that of the female is perfect. The expression of the face bulks account, but the expression of a well-made man appears not only in his face, it is in his limbs and joints also. It is curiously in the joints of his hips and wrists. It is in his walk, the carriage of his neck, the flex of waist and knees. Dress does not hide him. The strong, sweet quality he has strikes through the cotton and broadcloth. To see him pass conveys as much as the best poem, perhaps more. You linger to see him, his back and the back of his neck and shoulder side. I knew a man, a common farmer, the father of five sons, and in them the father of sons, and in them the father of sons. This man was of wonderful vigour, calmness, beauty of person, the shape of his head, the pale yellow and white of his hair and beard, the immeasurable meaning of his black eyes, the richness and breadth of his manners. These I used to go and visit him to see. He was wise also. He was six foot tall. He was over 80 years old. His sons were massive, clean, 
bearded, tan-faced, handsome. They and his daughters loved him. All who saw him loved him. They did not love him by allowance. They loved him with personal love. He drank water only. The blood showed like scarlet through the clear brown skin of his face. He was a frequent gunner and fisher. He sailed his boat himself. He had a fine one presented to him by the shipowner. He had fowling pieces presented to him by men that loved him. When he went with his five sons and his many grandsons to hunt or fish, you would pick him out as the most beautiful and vigorous of the gang. You would wish long and long to be with him. You would wish to sit by him in the boat that you and he might touch each other. I have perceived that to be with those I like is enough. To stop in company with the rest at evening is enough. To be surrounded by beautiful, curious, breathing, laughing flesh is enough. To pass among them or touch anyone or rest my arm ever so lightly round his or her neck for a moment. What is it then? I do not ask any more delight. I swim in it as in the sea. There is something in staying close to men and women and looking on them and in the contact and odour of them that pleases the soul well. All things please the soul. But these please the soul well. This might be a bit ambitious, but we're going to try and give you a digest of Plato's Symposium in six minutes. It's a small book, but it's still an ambitious uh, goal. So we're going to hear a few excerpts, but I'm going to set the scene first of all. Um, And apologies if you're already very familiar with the text. The Symposium is perhaps the classic philosophical work on eros, erotic love, the love of romance, desire and passion. The word Symposium refers to a Greek drinking party and the book is set at one of these gatherings. A lot of the great and the good have turned up round Agathon's house for a Symposium, for a party, but they're all hung over and and worse the wear for a big do the night before. So someone decides that they lay off the drinking for a night and instead amuse themselves by talking about love, the nature of love, eros, for the evening. Surprisingly, they're all up for this. So they take turns giving impromptu speeches about eros and we get to hear a variety of different perspectives. The star of the show is probably Socrates. All of the earlier speeches, in a way, build up to his... He's known for his wisdom and eloquence, and so everyone who speaks before him more or less knows they're, you know, they're going to be topped by whatever he says. You know, perhaps it's a bit like having Stephen Fry around for dinner or something like that. Everyone else knows they haven't got a chance. Socrates tells of what he's learned from Eros. Uh, Socrates tells of what he's learned of Eros from a wise woman called Diotima. As such, it's the only hint of a female voice anywhere in the symposium, but that's just an aside. 
The key idea from this speech, perhaps, is something called the ladder of love, and Anthony's going to read a condensed excerpt for us. Love, Eros, is the desire to have good forever. Given that love has this overall goal, we should ask this. What function does love really have? I shall tell you. Love's function is giving birth to beauty both in body and in mind. All human beings are pregnant in body and in mind, and when we reach a degree of adulthood, we, are, we naturally desire to give birth. There is something divine in this process. This is how mortal creatures achieve immortality. Those who are pregnant in body express their love by producing children. Those who are pregnant in mind express their love by bringing forth wisdom and other kinds of virtue. These are brought to birth by all the poets and craftsmen and by the organizations of cities and households. People look enviously at Homer and uh, Hesiod and other good poets because of the kind of children they left behind them, which provide them with immortal fame and remembrance. Now, the correct way for someone to approach this business of uh, erotic love is to begin when they're young by being drawn towards beautiful bodies. At first, they should love just one body and in that relationship produce beautiful discourses. Next, they should realize that the beauty of any one body is closely related to that of another and that it's very foolish not to regard the beauty of all bodies as one and the same. After this, they should regard the beauty of minds as more valuable than that of the body, so that if someone has goodness of mind, even if they have little of the bloom of beauty, they will be content with them, and they will love and care for them, and give birth to the kinds of discourse that help young people to become better. Then they will observe the beauty and practices and laws then forms of knowledge, and see their beauty too. They will be turned towards the great sea of beauty, and gazing on it, they'll give birth through a boundless love of knowledge to many beautiful and magnificent discourses and ideas. Thanks, Socrates. So Socrates, via Diotima, describes an idealised version of Eros through this ladder of love, where people graduate from their attraction to individuals, from the body to the mind to knowledge till they desire this abstract sea of beauty and ultimately the idealised form of beauty which is a key idea idea of Plato's, the forms. Many people treat this abstraction of erotic love as the concluding message of Plato's symposium. Socrates is meant to be the wisest so surely what he says goes and nowadays we often refer to platonic love to mean this sort of chaste, non-sexual form of love. But in the symposium, Socrates doesn't actually get the final word. At the end of his speech, an unexpected visitor, Alcibiades, crashes the party. Alcibiades is passionately in love with Socrates, to the point that he makes a bit of a nuisance of himself, and the lusty Alcibiades gets the nod to speak, without restraint about his own passion for this brilliant and eccentric man. So this is just a tiny distillation of some fragments of Alcibiades' speech. Good evening, gentlemen and uh, ladies. Oh, God. Now, will you let someone who's drunk, very drunk, 
join your symposium. I, I suppose you'll laugh at me because I'm drunk. I'll try to praise Socrates through images. Yeah. He, he, he's just like one of those statues of Silenus you see sitting in sculptors' shops. When they're opened up, you find they've got statues of the gods inside. Whenever I listen to him, my frenzy is greater than that of Corybantes. My heart pounds and tears flood out when he speaks. I, I don't know if any of you have seen the statues of Socrates when, they, when he's opened up. But when I saw them once, they seemed so divine, golden, oh, so utterly beautiful and amazing. I thought he was interested in my looks. And, and this was a godsend, an amazing good luck, because if I gratified him... I'd be able to hear everything he knew. So, I invited him to come to the gymnasium with me, and we exercised together. I thought I would get somewhere that way. So we, we exercised together, and we wrestled on many occasions with no one around, and what can I tell you? I got nowhere. Socrates is like no other human being, either of the past or the present. This person is so peculiar. You'll never find anyone close to him. Thank you, Alcibiades. I hope you sleep it off. <laughs> so through Alcibiades, we get to see a more familiar version of Eros, which is anything but abstract. A half-crazed desire for Socrates, the very particular and peculiar flesh-and-blood individual in front of him, who seems unique and irreplaceable. It seems that this sort of passion cannot be entirely abstracted away, even by Plato himself. We've now come to a time for meditation, so you might want to put down anything you don't need to be holding and get yourself comfortable in your seat. There'll be some introductory words to take us into a time of shared silence and then a couple of minutes of silent meditation which I'll bring to a close with the sounding of our bell. These words are by Edwin Lunn. Words tell us of our thoughts. Silence helps us hear our deeper feelings. In silence, we sense the rhythmic measures of all life in the slow, repetitive rhythm of our bodies. In silence we feel the ebb and flow of life's breath as the waves of the larger ocean in which we all live. In silence we sense a larger spiritual presence of which we are all a part. In silence we sense the coming and going of human pathways knowing we can ask no more than to have reached out to others in caring and creative ways. And in this silence, we know it is this human touch that gives the larger journey its meaning. Let us share a few moments of stillness together.
Some people might be a bit squeamish at the thought of a service all about Eros. If that's the case for anybody here today, thank you for overcoming your squeamishness and turning up to church regardless. I don't think there's anything too racy coming up in the next ten minutes, so I think you'll be alright. And for anyone who's looking forward to the racy bits, I'm sorry to disappoint. (laughs) So, Eros, when I mentioned the theme of today's service to a few non-churchy mates of mine, they expressed surprise at the thought that this sort of thing would be spoken of in positive terms from a pulpit. One friend gently ribbed me a bit about the undeniably true fact that on the whole, organised religion hasn't got a great reputation for celebrating passion, desire and sexuality in all its fullness and its occasional absurdity. The Catholic priest and social psychologist Dermid Omerhu has commented on what he calls the anti-sexual rhetoric of mainstream religion down the years. This is what he says about it. In mainline Christian spirituality, the erotic denotes primitive instinctual drivenness, a wild, uncontrolled release of passion with demon-like sexual desire as one of its primary expressions. Eros denotes everything that is disordered and disorderly, the subliminal id in Freudian psychology, the source of sin and temptation, the relentless drive that begets compulsions and addictions driving humans to insanity and beyond. So that critique is from Dermot O'Murchu. However, thankfully, most religious traditions contain at least strands which view Eros in a more positive light than this. And as religious liberals and progressives, we Unitarians in general tend to be far more open to the combination of spirituality and sexuality. I want to share some words from the eminent Unitarian Universalist minister, Rebecca Parker, who put Eros in a bigger context and ultimately at the very heart of what it means to live well. This, uh, what follows, is an extended excerpt from her great essay called A Home for Love by Rebecca Parker. She says, Love is what happens in the vibrant interchange between living beings and life forms. It is the experience of being drawn to one another, of interacting with each other to create happiness and joy, to labour to care for life's daily needs, to give refreshment to the soul. Love blesses the intersections among individual beings and the whole fabric of existence. So, Eros is more than acceptable in liberal religious understanding. It is revelatory of humanity's deepest capacities to touch and be touched, to take joy, to be transported and to transport another, to create life. Eros can be exploited and misdirected. It can be domesticated into patterns of dominance and submission that disrupt equality. When mutual power and consent are absent, it becomes abusive and can deeply harm bodies and souls. But, at its best, sexual intimacy can reveal the powers of the soul, our ability to feel and be affected, our capacity for both vulnerability and power to receive and to give. It can teach us that we have agency to act in the world, and that we can be moved deeply by the presence and the actions of another. It can transport our hearts into spaces of openness, flexibility, tenderness. It can renew, refresh and satisfy our love for life, not only our affection for a beloved, but our affection for the world. Those words are all from Rebecca Parker. So she's talking about Eros as a fundamental life force, and whilst acknowledging that this energy can be directed for good or ill, It's not an uncritically positive view of Eros. She's pointing towards the idea that as well as being about taking simple pleasure in the particular person in front of us, Eros can direct us to something beyond itself 
beyond ourselves, leading us onward and upward, raising us up on wings of desire. This notion has been around a very long time, and it's more or less the message that's contained in Plato's Symposium, in Socrates and Diotima's Ladder of Love. A lot of people tend to interpret Plato as talking about lower eros and higher eros, and saying that over a course of a lifetime, you ought to strive to transform your lowly, lusty urges into something more lofty and abstract. He seems to say that you start out when you're young and foolish, like Alcibiades, passionately desiring one beautiful individual, but if you educate and discipline yourself properly, you will come to realise that the proper object of your desire is something more abstract, the form of beauty itself, and you just happen to be experiencing that form through this particular individual. The downside of this interpretation of Plato is that it seems to deny our instinctive sense that it actually matters who it is we love and desire, this or that particular, unique, irreplaceable person. Alcibiades, half-crazed with desire, cries out that Socrates is like no other human of the past or the present. You'll never find anyone like him. So he certainly doesn't seem to think that the beauty of one beautiful person is interchangeable for the beauty of any other. And we heard that gorgeous excerpt from Walt Whitman earlier where he pays tribute to a particular man, a farmer, and celebrates every aspect of him, his strength, his character, his way of life, his presence, his lovely beard. Most interpretations of Plato seem to suggest he's saying we can't have it both ways and you should therefore choose the restrained, refined virtues of Socrates and lead into higher things over the chaotic passion of Alcibiades. If that's really what he meant, then this is where I part company from him because I reckon we can have it both ways. Each of us may have a temperament that causes us to lean one way or the other by default but I'd suggest it's good to keep in touch with both the earthy aspect and the transcendental aspect of Eros. It's likely that one or other will dominate at different times of life, but over the course of a lifetime, there's room for both. Let's not turn Eros into a rarefied abstraction altogether. The particular, flawed, lumpy, bumpy, hairy, flesh and blood reality of the person in front of us is uniquely valuable and should be cherished in their own right. Eros significantly shapes the course of our lives. So in an attempt to bring it right back down to earth as best I can, let's consider how this might play out in everyday reality. Plato talks about being pregnant in body and mind. The most conventional sense in which Eros can be said to shape lives is in the sense in which you might be drawn to someone romantically, get together, possibly make a home together, possibly raise children. Obviously there are very many variations on how this plays out. Eros, at one level, is connected to a sort of immortality through procreation in the darkest biological sense of passing on your genes or in the sense of passing on your values and ideals when helping to bring up children or educate the next generation. But Plato's notion of being pregnant in mind broadens this considerably. Eros brings us into powerful connections with others which inspire us to create homes, to create cities, works of art, literature and poetry works of justice, science and philosophy. All of these, in a sense, are children of the mind, which arise from the energy of Eros. As Iris Murdoch wrote in the words that are on the front of your order of service, Eros is a principle which connects the commonest human desire to the highest morality and to the pattern of divine creativity in the universe. Carnal love teaches us that what we want is always beyond 
and it gives us an energy which can be transformed into creative virtue. And even ill-fated or short-lived passion can have an impact. Every time we're drawn towards another human being, the attraction may well be leading us somewhere and not just into the arms of the one we fancy. Our passion may open us up to new things. For example, when we're besotted with someone, we might want to read the books they've read, listen to the music they're listening to, try out the pastimes that they're interested in. We might broaden our horizons, learn something new, become enlarged. To put it in a way that Plato might approve of, we increase in virtue and wisdom if we're lucky. Even those ships which pass in the night may make a lasting and significant impression. There's a deep value in intimate knowing and being known in body as well as soul. We can approach any encounter in a way which sanctifies it and brings out a deeper meaning. As Walt Whitman wrote, there is something in staying close to men and women and looking in them and in the contact and odour of them that pleases the soul well. Eros, in its widest sense, in its myriad forms, might just be the driving force of all life. And on that note, I want to close with some words by James and Evelyn Whitehead from their book, Holy Eros. The human journey is sustained by Eros and grace. Eros names the vital energy that animates all creation. Eros lies at the source of our desires for friendship and love, for fruitful work, for life in abundance. Eros and grace embrace in the heart of God. Although we usually associate Eros with the energies of sexual desire, it is much more than that. It is an ebullient, eager and sometimes disruptive energy that moves us again and again toward more life. The energy of Eros opens pathways to a passionate God. May it be so for all of us, one way or another. Amen. May the love that gives to life its beauty, the reverence that gives to life its sacredness, and the purposes that give to life its deep significance be strong within each of us and lead us into ever-deepening relationships with all of life. Let us go in the spirit of love, never knowing where we might find the divine, yet conscious of the spark within each of us and the unfolding beauty that surrounds us. Let us go in peace. Let us go in love. And may our lives be a blessing. Amen.